So, I'd like to welcome to the show today one of the UK's most respected UFO researchers, I would say, Philip Mantle. How are you doing today, sir? Good evening, young man. Nice to speak to you. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, pleasure's all mine, I can assure you. (laughs) Great stuff. So, Philip, if you don't mind, I think we'll we'll actually just skip the sort of how did you get into the UFO topic side of things, because I've actually heard you cover that in, in great detail in a couple of excellent recent interviews including the one with ryan spygon somewhere in the skies um but with with that said you have been a uk-based ufo researcher now for over 40 years so safe to say you've you've got a lot of experience of the ufo topic how do you feel like the field has, has changed over the decades from, yeah, from when yeah. you when first you got say, into it when you say over 40 years it don't half make me sound old <laughs> <laughs> i probably am how has it changed I mean, certainly technology uh, helps enormously. I mean, just look at what we're doing now, you know, and we're able to do that pretty much around the world. Um, Me being a Yorkshireman, we're often accused of being, you know, careful with our money. And I I can't believe that I can speak to colleagues in different parts of the world using this type of technology and it doesn't cost me a penny. (laughs) So certainly technology has has changed things. Um, When I began, you know, the only way to speak to people was either on the phone or you could write to them or you go and see them in person. You know, I I remember in the 80s when I first got a fax machine, I thought thought this was the biggest. This thing was enormous. (laughs) You know, this great big thing spewing this. I thought that was technology out and i remember when i got my first word processor not a computer this you know the amstrads with the green screen and all that lot and i thought isn't this amazing you know so certainly technology has has, has you know changed everything in that respect i mean most of the local ufo groups have gone you know which is is a great shame um, because one of the ways of finding out information, of course, was to join your local UFO group, which is what I did, and then attend others. A lot of them used to have little meetings, and every now and again they'd have a you know a, a presentation or whatever. And and certainly when I be, when I after I'd been involved for a good few years, I became Bufora's director of investigations. Part of the job in inverted commas that I thought I should do was to go around and meet the local groups and, you know, and, and set up a liaison so we could work together. And um, so that's a great shame. Most of the UFO groups have gone. Even Buforder is only, there's only a handful of people left. It's, it's nothing compared to like it used to be. So I think that's a shame. I think that's technology. But um, that's the way things go. And you just have to accept it. So things are certainly different. Hmm. How do you think, um, like things like Twitter and and podcasts have uh, have impacted the the topic? Do you think it's like a, a negative overall or, or a positive impact that those things have had? Well, I think it can only be a positive in in general terms. I mean, you know, I use Twitter. I don't really know what I'm doing with it, but I, I use it. I, you know, I'm not one of these that's on it every five minutes telling somebody I've had a cup of coffee or I've gone to the <laughs> shop. You know, it's I use it for mainly promotional thing but, and but the thing about technology and you know anybody can be a, a keyboard warrior can't they? a warrior and they can slag people off and say this and say that and there's no there's no comeback on it so that's the negative side of it you know i think there's more disagreement with technology than there was when you were in a meeting or a, or a, you know or speaking to somebody face to face so that's the downside of it but like i said you know i i it's amazing i used to be part of MUFON, you know, it's an international organization, HQ in America. And the only way I could contact them was to write to them. And remember that the international director at the time was um, a chap called uh, Walt Andrus. Um, Walt and I got on very well. And he, he often said, you know, Philip writes to me faster than I can reply. So <laughs> I wanted an instant reply. Um, and that's one of the things you can get with technology, like with email. 
you know, I can send it off and within seconds I've got a reply. So there's there's pros and cons, but you, you, I, don't, I don't think you can really knock you, you know, technology. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? There's there's sort of like a, you know pros and cons to it. On the, on the one hand, you've got everybody can connect a lot easier and and talk about you know things like UFOs and a sort of like niche topics. I guess you know people connect all over the world a, a lot easier. But on the other hand, like you say, there's that lack of human interaction, isn't there? And sometimes drama become can escalate very quickly on especially on twitter and things like that yeah yeah i mean i i try and refrain from it it's not easy you feel you, you feel your fingers hovering over the keyboard yourself sometimes <laughs> even when it's not your character to do that i think that's that's part of the way the technology is actually designed though rather than just the individuals but um when it comes down to ufo research or, or research into anything basically it's amazing that you can share information and ideas with an audience around the world in you know blink of an eye whereas like i said i used to have to either write or phone somebody and then if of course you know you're hoping that when you phone them that it's you've got the right time zone and things like (laughs) (laughs) things like this so yeah i think technology is it's is the biggest difference and like i said there are there's downsides to everything but that's you just have to accept that and ignore the idiots Absolutely. So you've drawn on your uh, extensive experience over the past uh, 40 years or more and and put all that information into your new book, uh, UFO Landings UK. So what what is it about landings in particular that you that you find interesting? Well, I, you know, I'm usually I'm going back to the late Alan Hynek. I mean, he's the sort of godfather of, of modern ufology was Dr. Hynek. I never had the chance to meet him. I he was in the UK a couple of times, and I, I just missed him um, before he sadly passed away. But um, one of the things he talked about is high strangeness. You know, Heineck is the man who, who invented the term close encounters. It was a categorization system. He, he worked on Spielberg, worked with Spielberg on the movie. He has a, has a little cameo in it. And, and, you know, if if you see a little light three miles in the distance, it can be just about anything. You know, especially today when we've got drones and that kind of stuff. Um, but he talked about high strangeness. And when you get up close and personal to these things, and on occasion you'll have more than one witness, and you may have some kind of trace marks left in the environment afterwards, and you might have some kind of documentation thereafter. They're all layers of high strangeness. Not every account has all those factors in it. But they'll have some of them, you know. And and of course, in, in my humble opinion, the closer you get to something, the more difficult it is you will misidentify it. Because as a UFO researcher investigator, you know that most things that come your way have a conventional explanation. Might not always be able to figure it out, but you'll know in the back of your mind, yeah, you know, at this time of year that there was the blood moon last night, you know. At certain times of the years, there's Venus and Jupiter are bright, and then we'll have meteor showers. And, you know, we would always say, you know, we're going to get a few reports because Venus is bright in the, in the morning sky, and you know. But when you're up close and personal to these things, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's much more difficult to misinterpret what you're seeing, what you're experiencing, and, and hence UFO landings. I got involved with a UFO landing case you know, when I first started in, in, in UFO research, and they always stuck in the back of my mind. And it was one that was just a few miles up the road from where I lived as well, because prior to that, all the things you read about were all in the United States or somewhere else, but never never here in where I live in West Yorkshire. And then you get one reported to you that is literally, you know, three miles from where you live. And it makes it that much more real. and you know, when you go and speak to the individuals that were involved and, and look into the case, I thought, you know, it was vindication that I, I joined ufology and that I wasn't wasting my time. These things are there. They are, I don't know what they are. They're real, you know, and it's real people that, invent, you know, that experience these accounts. So what I, what I did down the years, I mean, right from that very first one back in the 80s, I would – you know, meet individuals, I'd interview people or I would get information from other 
colleagues and other sources, you know, slowly but surely they would be filed away and filed away. I literally still have an old metal filing cabinet next to me. <laughs> so someone in there, someone in digital format. And I'd had this idea for a, a number of years to compile them all into a, a publication. I, for whatever reason, I, I never got around to it. But then what happens? We have a pandemic. We're not allowed to go anywhere. Everything's shut. So I actually wrote two books during the pandemic. This is one of them, UFO Landings UK. That's why you might see, if you look at it on Amazon, please look at it Amazon when you're buying a copy. <laughs> you know, the publication date reads a couple of years back, but that's when I first uploaded the cover. You know, right. I, so the manuscript, once you upload something, if you don't put a date on it when you upload it, it will just date it as that day. So it looks like it's already been out for a while, but it hasn't. It's literally just come out now. So these are things I still learn about this business, you know. And I thought, well, there's, I've got no excuse now. You know, I can either sit down and write these two books that I've been planning for years, planning in inverted commas, or I can go and talk to the wife. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but so, you know, she said, get in there and get them finished, you know. And and, and that's what I did. And I'm pleased with it, you know. I'm, I'm I'm glad it's done and it's out of the way. And uh, we've got some, had some good comments so far. Because there's some intriguing cases in it. There, there really is. And the, I, I, I often think if it's the kind of thing that will intrigue me, I'm sure it'll in, these will intrigue other people and leave them scratching their head pretty much like I am at the end of the day, you know. And um, there are some, when we talk about high strangeness, there are some real high strangeness cases in it. But I find them all fascinating, I, you know. I, I really do. So that that's how it all came about. I had a long interest in it, and then I got to a stage where I thought, well, I, if I don't write this now, I'll probably never get around to it. So, thankfully, that was one of the good things that came out of the pandemic. Yeah, and and yeah, I mean, part of the the inspiration for me starting this, but this this deep interest in UFOs came out of the pandemic as well. So I know what you mean about that. And, and this your book is is really helpful for somebody like me because I think I've been kind of part of this new wave of the last few years. Really, people getting interested in the topic, and a lot of that is america you know centric kind of yeah. thing you know it's a lot to do with the the government side of things with america and the various navy sightings and your book is is brilliant for me to to get you know a handle on some actual really quite local cases as well yeah and 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 as you say the the thing is one thing seeing lights in the sky and things like that and but when you're actually talking about people who've seen something up close and personal, it's, it's really, really interesting. And the, the link, by the way, for Philip's book will be in the episode description. So recommend uh, people go and check that out. But you've um, you've split the book kind of into like a chronological order, which again is quite useful for me to be able to see sort of how things have progressed throughout the decades. Were, were there any sort of... Um, you know, patterns and trends that you noticed that, that changed in terms of the nature of the sightings over the years, or did they yeah, remain absolutely. quite consistent? I, I, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I, I thought of a few ideas of how to lay it out, but I thought, no, it's best to do it decade by decade. Uh, for me, that was that was my, my I'm not saying it's, it's the best, it's just the way I looked at it. What you see is the phenomena actually evolves, it changes. And I remember, it's a couple of years back, I did an interview for somebody. I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember who it was. And they said, for example, where have all the Space Brothers gone? Because in the 1950s, that's what was reported. It was the, you know, the blonde, blue-eyed Venusians or Neptunians that had come to save mankind from, you know, death and destruction. They were our Space Brothers. And he rightly said, well, well, where have the Space Brothers gone? And they're not here anymore. So I, I, as you go through the decades, you see how the accounts evolve. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. It's not in the book. Uh, it came in after the book had, had been written. And I was this is a case I was tempted to put in the book. But I thought, no, I, the book's done. Leave it. You know, don't fiddle with it. But I, I did a... A little television series last year. I made a four-part documentary, and it was broadcast. And a local chap contacted me, 
And and when we were allowed to meet, he says, can I Bob Brown? I've got something I want to show you. So I said, okay. So in he come. And this was his, not his, but it was his wife's grandfather. And he'd lived up uh, as a youngster up Manchester way. And he'd been a mining engineer. For those that don't know, the whole of the, the area where I live in West Yorkshire around Pontefract, Normanton, Castleford, Wakefield, they were all coal mines. I was born in a pit village. My dad worked down the pit all his life. Uh, and this this fella grew up to eventually be a, a, a mining engineer. He designed the lift shafts, the gear, and all this kind of stuff. And before he died, he wrote his memoirs. And when I say memoirs, I'm talking about 50 or 60 pages. I'm not talking a huge, great volume. And it was split into two parts. First one is, was growing up. And the second one was about his, his life as an engineer. And this fellow said, don't read the engineering bit. It's really boring. <laughs> <laughs> but in the other part, um, that is the biggest chapter in the whole memoirs, it's called The Encounter. And in 1911, him and his mate, I think he was about nine years old at the time, were on the way to, to a park. We were off to the park one morning. That was a time when you still went out on your own, you know, and he said they came across this large cigar-shaped thing on the ground and they went up to it and the door opened and these humanoids were there, but they looked Asian. And they went in and they, they had brightly colored clothing and a little turban on and they conversed with them and showed them around and on you go. And that's in this, this memoir. And he only printed about 10 copies. It was just for his family and his family only. And no one but no one had seen it. So he allowed me to copy it and I wrote it up as an article. But they're aching the Space Brothers that were, you know, the Asian, these were Asian looking rather than blonde Scandinavians, but they've got a little turban on. They look pretty much like you and I. But do you get any of that today? I would say probably not. So you see how things have changed, and they really have. So as you go through the decades, I introduced the decade with a little bit that was happening in the UK at the time, you know, like, like in the 60s. We've got to remind ourselves that's when England won the World Cup, you know, and yeah. <laughs> the swinging 60s and all that kind of stuff. Um, so not only you get the history changes, but you see you, the, the UFO phenomena, whatever it may or may not be, evolve, if that's the right word. But it, I mean, is it is it a change in the phenomena? Is it or is it a change in how we perceive it? Because we, as a as a as a species, change. You know, things around us change. Much different now than than when I was a kid. You know, mobile phones, for example, were only the thing of Star Trek, but we've all got one in our back pocket now. Um, mm. So, so you do see how it changed. And of course, in, in on June the twenty fourth of this year. We celebrate the 75th anniversary of flying saucers, Kenneth Arnold's famous sighting. But uh, there is a, a chapter about things pre-Kenneth Arnold, just to emphasize that, yes, rightly so, we've, we've got a start date for flying saucers. But let's not forget there were strange phenomena reported prior to that date as well. So I have a little bit of that at the same time. And some of the, some of the cases... I'd put to one side, and I hadn't read them for, for years, if I'm honest. They were just sat there gathering dust. And, I, and when I was re reading them again, I thought, I mean, I, I knew these had high strangeness, but it, it even surprised me yet again when I, when I was coming to put them in the book. Um, so things have changed, and you see how, how the phenomena develops down the decades. And you can see it for yourself. There's no patterns. Uh, that was part of your question. There's no. I, I've looked. Uh, is it anything to do with your age, the location, the time of day? I mean, we did all this for years when I was at the Yorkshire UFO Society with no computers in those days. You just you used to just write it and we'd look for patterns and, and you know, and I, I can't, if there is one, I can't find it. But what we have to remember is we're, we're not necessarily dealing with all the information. So it's very difficult to pick out patterns. We have no idea how much of the data we actually have in our possession. Like I said, there's that gentleman, the mining engineer, it's only his family ever got to know about that. How many more things that are there that go unreported? I would I would guess quite quite a lot. So when it comes to, you know, looking for patterns and things like that, we've, we've only got so much of the data. Uh, I think in, in any 
any patterns we may come up with would be flawed as a result of that. It's like having only half of a jigsaw puzzle, you know, and then trying to guess what the re- the other half is that you haven't got. You, you know, you haven't got the box lid to look at the picture, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's very difficult for look for things like that. And if they're there, I, can't, I certainly can't find them. Have you ever noticed any kind of like um, shapes, for example, that are more commonly observed? Is that random as well? Or that's that's totally random. I mean, you have periods where things go in and out of vogue almost, out of fashion. Um, for example, we t- you t- you, I think you mentioned it earlier on. You, we talk about the Tic Tacs now, and as if, as if, mm-hmm. as if the, these Navy videos are the be all and end all. They are interesting, but I wouldn't go any further than that. But the, you know, there was a time, for example, in the um, in the late eighties, mid to late eighties, into the nineties, when it was all the triangles, especially with the wave of sightings over Belgium, um, and then I think. When you look at the sightings that, that I've, I've used in the book, not sightings, encounters, they kind of reflect Britain as a society as well because we are a multicultural society. I mean, the first humans to ever live on these shores were from the Germanic regions of Europe. You know, then we had how many dec- how many centuries did the Romans <laughs> live here? And they came from all over Europe, not just Rome. Then we had the Vikings from... Uh, you know, from Scandinavia. Then with the Normans from Normandy, they weren't French, they were Normans. And then we've, you know, integrated other cultures as well. And I think you see that ref- that's reflected in the weird and wonderful that is reported as part of these encounters. Some of it is extremely bizarre. And that's one another one of the reasons I, I, I stuck to the UK because I think some of the things that are reported here are unique to the, these these islands, you know. And um, the debunkers would have us believe that such things are only seen by, you know, hillbillies in Mississippi or, you know, some, some farmer in, in New Mexico. Well, it's not the case. Like I said, the first one I ever report, I ever investigated was in my back garden in a, in a mining town here in West Yorkshire. So... I, I like to emphasize that these things happen everywhere, in every part of the world. And the people that report them, just like you and me, it could be you and me, it could be your next door neighbor, could be your colleague at work, could be a milkman, you know, literally. And they were when these things happened, they were just about their everyday lives and, and bang, hey, presto. Excuse me. Carry on. Mm. Yeah, I was I was thinking about the 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 concept of like year people discuss this quite a bit, you know, like whether or not what's being observed is actually like a, a nuts and bolts craft, like a physical craft, or if it's potentially something weirder, like a like a manifestation of you know consciousness and things like that. But I suppose like. Would you be tempted to say because these things have actually been witnessed to to land and in some cases leave like impressions on the ground that that suggests that it's more of a physical craft? Well, no, I I, I leave it totally open ended. Um, what what I've found is if you if you sink your teeth into any one particular theory or, or explanation, you tend to be somewhat biased and either consciously or even you know unconsciously. Um, and you tend to filter out the, the the information that doesn't fit your your theory. You know, it's, it's like I think they call it confirmation bias. You don't necessarily know you're doing it, um, but you do. I, I remember, for example, in the nineties, there was a I won't mention his name, but he was a well known abduction researcher in the states. It wasn't Bud Hopkins or anyone like that. This just chaps no longer appears in in the UFO culture. But as far as he was concerned, if you hadn't reported one of the little grey guys, then your encounter wasn't bona fide. And that, that was his conclusion. And I had to remind him that at that time, the most famous, probably still is the most famous alien abduction encounter was Betty and Barney Hill. And they didn't report the archetypical little grey guys. They, she, I, I never met Betty, but I corresponded with her. You just call them, you know, the UFO men, and 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 she has drawings and paintings of them that, and they weren't the little bug-eyed, black-eyed things that 
people report today. But he he said quite categorically, if you if you haven't seen these things, then your your encounter isn't valid. Well, that would mean that I think just about every sighting I've put in this book would be invalid, you know, because they like that the, the the encounter I just mentioned to you at nineteen eleven. They didn't see the little grey guys. These were Asian looking, you know, Southeast Asian or Indian or, you know, from that that neck of the woods. And make of it what you will. But I I, I try and keep an open mind. I really do. Um, I found myself going down certain corridors thinking I'm onto something. And then something will crop up and throw it all into disarray anyway, you know. Um so I think, well, what was the point in looking at it, looking at it in that way? Because you know sooner or later something's going to crop up that's going to throw your theory out the window, if you're honest and, you know, and open-minded. And it has done that countless times with me, countless times. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I mean, you've, you've got to keep all the options on the table, haven't you? And as soon as you start getting too wedded to one particular, you know, hypothesis, then it's uh, it can it can be trouble, can't it? Well, it, it can, and I think you know our, our own science here on on Earth has expanded in in recent decades. For example, um, when when astronomers talk about the 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 size of the visible universe, it's something like forty plus million light years across. There is an estimated two trillion galaxies. How many, you know, stars and planets are within those galaxies? I, I don't know what the next numbers up would be, but cap. So the, what we found in our own science is that the universe, visible universe, is much bigger than we we ever expected, and and there's more stars and planets and, and galaxies in that we ever expected. However, the distance between them. Are a lot further. So when you talk about linear space travel, you know, like we go to the moon, we blast off in a rocket and land eventually on the moon or whatever. Um, that's really out of the window because we just simply can't get to where we'd like to go and, and live long enough. Um, plus all the other things we don't have as well. But but so I've, you found some UFO researchers looking at. What what I'd say is science fiction technology is like th- traveling through wormholes. Um, or I, I met Professor Michio Kaku, a well-known physicist in in astrophysicist in the in the US, and he talked about bending space and time and all this kind of thing. And what's also cropped up a little bit, and it is only a little bit, some UFO researchers have started saying, well, perhaps they're not aliens after all. Perhaps it's us. But actually, it's us from the future. So these are, this is how we will evolve in X amount of zillion years. And for some reason, we're coming back. Um, I, had a, I had a colleague of mine, for example, and a couple of decades back now, he believed that there's a number of abductees. Sometimes they used to have these apocalyptic visions or they were shown things by the aliens, but usually doom and gloom. We were going to either blow ourselves up with atomic bombs or, you know, uh, ecological disaster. And he, he said that these weren't aliens from anywhere. They were psychic projections from us in the future to warn us to mend our ways. And so there's all these, and there's lots of other theories, of course. We'd all love it to be aliens. Let's let's be honest, you know, hand on heart. It's the romantic, it's the, it's the most romantic theory out of the lot. And and we'd love to, you know, stand up and say, well, you know, told you so. And I'd, I'd be the first person to scream and shout if that were proven to be correct. But we just, as far as I'm concerned, we just don't know. Mm. Yeah, I think it's um, it's worth being honest about that, isn't it? I mean, like a lot of people shy away from saying, you know, the the A word sort of thing, you know, aliens. But that that is definitely something that that is very interesting as as one of the options, and definitely something I would very much like to be the case. But as you say, at the end of the day, it's a big old mystery, isn't it? That's it why is. we're all involved. I, I, I wouldn't ever rule it out completely because you know science is littered with people who've ruled things out, you know, and have proven to be wrong. Um, and I often say, don't, don't you know, don't knock the skeptics either, because skepticism has the rightful place in this subject. For example, I said, 
when you go on holiday and you go, you fly to Spain, how do you get there? Well, I've gone on an aeroplane. Who were the first people to fly an aircraft? The Wright brothers. They were skeptics because the science of the day said you can't fly in a mechanical aircraft. They were skeptical of that and proved science wrong. You know, so there's nothing wrong in being a healthy skeptic uh, in any subject, especially in one like this. Debunkers is another is a different thing altogether. You know, there's no amount of evidence will will convince them of anything. So it's complete. I don't know why they're involved in the first place. You know, um, but there's nothing wrong with being skeptical and putting alternative ideas and theories forward. Because at the end of the day, we we really don't know. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting you say it. That that's exactly the way I describe it when I've talked about it on the podcast over the the last the last year of doing this. Is that there's a difference between uh, you know rational skeptics and debunkers, where they're just out to, from the word go, they're trying to prove that it's all nonsense and they've already made their mind up, and that's not actually scientific, is it? If you think of it, not at all. I mean, it's like Philip Class. You know, he was the arch debunker. I, I I had the pleasure of meeting him once, and we got on great. I had a great laugh with him. But I thought to myself, why are you why are you wasting your time just saying these things don't exist? Go and do something more productive. It's like the, the late James Randi. He made a he made a career out of, of arguing that Uri Geller wasn't real. You know, his 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 powers weren't real. I thought, well, if you if you don't believe that, why why you know he's he's made you a living, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I would, you know, so debunkers just don't take any notice of them. Skeptics, you know, should be listened to. You might not agree with them, but they certainly have their place. Mm. Yeah, there's without skeptics and without people asking the the tough questions, there's always that danger of it becoming a bit of an echo chamber, isn't there? But in terms of um, military sightings and things like that, is is that something you're interested in, like the military facilities and things like that, for sightings being not, reported? Not, no, not particularly. If you if you think you know, I, I know there's been colleagues of I've written about all there was. You know, UFO sightings at Maelstrom Air Force Base and, you know, RAF Woodbridge, Bentwaters in the UK. And, but, well, okay, I'm, I'm not saying they weren't, but they are tiny when, it's, when you compare it to the, all the other UFO sightings. So mm. the majority of UFO sightings happen nowhere near a military installation. Mm. You know, if you think about it back in the, in the 70s and the 80s, there's a lot of military installations in the UK, and we're only a tiny island. You know, um, one or two Americans keep asking me what time zone we're on here. <laughs> we're not big enough to have more than one time zone. You know, you've got <laughs> you've got states bigger than the UK. Um, yeah. You know, so it's, it's sometimes it's again you're looking for things, looking for connections that might not be there, um, and. They're nonetheless interesting because what you may get with military sightings is, uh, as Heineck said, you know, documentary evidence. And I don't, documentary is not always paper; it can be radar, satellite information. You know, documentation about what had happened there afterwards, uh, and that that uh, that has. I mean, we got Colonel Holt's famous memo about the Rendlesham events. You know, that's a piece of evidence. And that would, you know, that would stand up in court if it was a court case. You know, it's an official document telling you, called his titles it unexplained lights. And at Maelstrom, you've got, I think you, there were reports of what happened there. And, you know, it was officially documented. But we have to remember most of the UFO sightings were nowhere near any kind of military installation. Um, but it's, I, I'm interested in all of it that, you know, Yes, I've written a book on on UFO landings in the UK, but down the decades that I've been involved, pretty much anything and everything has crossed my desk. You know, from your, from the little light in the sky to alien abductions, photographic cases, hoaxes, you name it, pretty much everything in between. So I've, I've never tried to specialise. Some some people do. They'll look at just one aspect of the subject and do a great job in doing that. I'm not knocking it in any way, shape, or form. Um, but but when it when it comes to military sightings, one of the cases in the book, um, I don't know if I mention it on the other interviews I've done, but it's, it's a chap called John Warren, and it happened at RAF Ludham uh, in 1943. 
And this was in Norwich, Norfolk. And uh, Mr. Warren was actually in the RAF. And it's the middle of the Second World War, and he was um, an armourer. So whatever uh, equipment they, the, the, the squadron used, he would arm them, you know, the various things. And he'd gone uh, out for the night. He'd gone to a local dance. And he, he missed the train back. This was still a time when a lot of the little towns still had train stations. And, and he was worried that it was going to get back late because he had to walk and it was 12 miles. So the 12 miles didn't bother him as the fact that if you go back late on a night out, you're going to get in big trouble. Anyway, he walks back as he's approaching the base. Up ahead, he sees this green light by the, by the side of the road. As he approaches it, there is a humanoid figure stood there, so perfectly still. It's got a box on its chest, and it throws this green light up into its face. Makes it look like it's got a smirk on its face. And Mr. Warren said, behind it, on the grass verge, was an object on the ground, shaped like a bell tent, but it was illuminated. And there were two more of these figures behind it to the left. It scared the living daylights out of him. He ran back to the base. Luckily for him, one of his friends was waiting up for him and let him in through a window. And the, I, I, he reported it in the 60s. I've got a copy of his letter in the book. Uh, and I, I interviewed Mr. Warren in the 1980s. And uh, it was as clear as a bell when he was recounting it. And he said, I, he, he didn't allow me to write it up, so I haven't put it in the book, even though it's probably long since gone now. Um, he said, Philip, if, I, if I'd have been armed, I'd have shot it because it wasn't one of us. So if it wasn't one of us, it must be the enemy, you know, and it's an RAF base and it's the middle of the second world war. And, you know, he, he, so it was, it, it was great to sit in his living room and speak to him about that in person. You could see the look on his face when he's telling you about it. And he even did a little drawing. I, I've used that in the book as well. So that, you know, but of course, a lot of those bases, once the war was finished, they were gone anyway. Um, so it's, it's always difficult when you look for associations with the UFO phenomenon, certain places, locations, etc. It's not always that easy. Um, it's like I know there was one point they were looking if if, um, if UFOs were connected to you know bodies of water, i.e., lakes, reservoirs, and so on. Well, we've got loads of them scattered all over the place. It's it's not that difficult if somebody has a but you know. So, I, like I said, there's there's been some great work done in those areas, but it's it's not it's not a route I go down personally. Mm. Yeah, that that's kind of uh, why I asked the question. I sort of got the impression from hearing you talk and things like that in in the past that you, you're quite interested in wider scope of things, really, rather than just like specifically military sightings. And you can sort of like you've said about going to people's homes and speaking to them and looking them in the eye and having a brew with them. And yeah. you can, re you can relate to people that way. And I suppose it's easy to do that with people who aren't on a military base or something to an extent. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, if I get the opportunity to do that again, I'll, I'll do it. You know, I just, I said, technology is a lot easier, but uh, I feel fortunate that I've been able to do that. And, um, Mostly here in the UK, of course, but not entirely. I, I have met witnesses and researchers overseas as well on occasion. And uh, I don't think you can beat it. I really don't. Um, and you see that look. Sometimes you just see that look on their face. They, they're visualizing what, what's, what happened. And, and we, we all do it. You know, we can visualize, you know, your daughter's birthday party or your football team winning the FA Cup or whatever. You know, it's... We can all we've all got that capability, but they have this far away look in their eyes, and you're thinking, "Well, I wish I wish I could look through his eyes and see what he can see now." But I'll I'll do my best to document what he's telling me anyway. Um, but I, I I never lose the fascination for all things UFOs. You know, yep, yeah, the the UFO landings as as I've written up in the book. You know, took I took an interest in those down the decades simply because it was one of the first cases I got involved in. But I've, I, you know, I've been involved in all kinds of stuff, and um, there'll be more to come. I can assure you. Oh, I'm very much looking forward to what, what you do next. But um, you you mentioned um, earlier about uh, J. Allen Hynek 
And um, I believe he was a, a consultant to that uh, Close Encounters movie. And do you, do you think there is uh, an, an effort to sort of slowly prepare the, the public for some kind of upcoming disclosure through things like movies and things like that? Or, or do you think that sort of thing's a bit far-fetched? I, I, I don't believe a word of it at all. I mean, when, when, I, when I first got involved, very well-known UFO researcher and author, I won't mention his name, but he told us categorically that the, they are going to tell us the government. And I kept saying, well, who the hell is they? And who the hell is the government, you know? And, of course, nothing happened. And then I think it was in the late 80s, early 90s, we had a thing called Operation Right to Know, where they would literally march outside the White House with banners. And they were going to tell us then, the government. And now we have they've just changed the name of it now. Now they call it Disclosure. Mm. And uh, the government, they, wh- whoever they is, the Department of Defense, are going to tell us. We're going to tell us what? You're assuming they've got something to tell. You're assuming what they mean by disclosure is they're going to tell us that UFOs really are aliens and have been visiting the Earth or whatever, and Roswell really was an alien crash and and so on. Okay, I'd love to be wrong, and I I hope, you know, that kind of disclosure is is around the corner, but we've had that for 40-plus years. I mean, we've had it for decades before that. Same thing, different name. Um, but what you have to remember, let, let's assume that, that, that for sake of argument, UFOs are alien vehicles. We can forget arguing about how they've got here in the first place. Forget that for the time being. Mm. Would it really be one country that would release that information or would make a statement or a declaration? For example, you have Joe Biden, who's the president of the United States. Well, he's got his detractors. You know, I don't know which I don't know which political party he's part of, but whoever he is, he's got the other lot would say, "Well, he's told. Look at him; he's gone. He's senile old devil. Yeah, I've told you not to elect him." You know, had it been you know the year before, it had been Trump, and it would have been the opposite. Would it be a religious leader like the Pope? Well, not everybody's a Catholic, and the, and the, you know the Catholic Church has its detractors. Uh, would it be the United Nations? Well, not every country's part of the United Nations. And it's got its critics. And, of course, there's people in other countries who are not connected to the Western world, don't have mobile phones, don't have technology, and there are even some who don't still live without running water and electricity. So whoever the hell announced it, they wouldn't know about it anyway, and and nor would they give a monkeys, you know. They'd they'd still live the the, the life that they they normally do. So to expect um, any one administrator's body or government department or government to announce it, I think it's a bit naive, to, to be honest. For example, our own Ministry of Defence have been telling us for decades that they do realise there's things that they cannot, they cannot identify, but they're not interested. Unless they see a direct threat to the UK's defence, they're not interested. And some may argue with that. And say, well, they're telling you lies, and they may be right, but that is that that is their public stance. And when you talk to military people, and I've talked to a few, not a lot, you sometimes wonder, well, does the Ministry of Defence have any more information than we do? Okay, they might have a few photographs or some radar recordings, but by and large, we don't investigate UFOs. We investigate sightings of UFOs. By the time we get there, and that would be the same for any government department, the UFO or whatever the hell it was has been and gone. So they can only do the same as us. They speak to the witnesses, you know, look for any, you know, physical evidence, etc., etc., etc. Like I said, they may have some film like the Tic Tac stuff, which is still hotly debated, I might add. Um, and you know, they may have some radar recordings. I'll give you an example. I spoke to, I spoke to a, a squadron leader, uh, Alan Turner, and, and, and we found out about him just by accident. Two of my friends had been to a lecture somewhere, and they were in a pub afterwards, and they're talking about UFOs at the bar. This old boy sat with his friends next to him, and he said, excuse me, gentlemen, talking about UFOs. And so he was, he was wing commander, Alan Turner, OBE, 
And in the 60s, his security classification was so high that when the, the U-2 spy plane came into the UK to refuel, he was notified of it. That was the most secret aircraft on the planet, you know. And he, he tracked, he was on duty, and he tracked six uh, uh, targets over mainland Britain that were double-checked with uh, Heathrow and another RAF station. And he says, Philip, I can give you a list of what these things were not. As to what they were, I have no idea, you know. And he documented it. He, he informed the Ministry of Defence about it. You won't find that report in any of their files because we've looked. But he said, I was ordered to make a, you know, an immediate report. But I've, I've got the same information as from him as the MOD does, if he reported it. So have they got anything more than we have? They might have got the radar tapes of that day. That, that would be it. But would it tell them an awful lot more? I'm, I'm not that sure. I'm not that sure. Because UFOs are such an elusive phenomenon. I, I can't, it's like saying, oh, we, if we could get a budget to study UFOs, well, what the hell are we going to study? We'd still be studying people reporting UFO sightings, most of which are misidentified in the first place, you know? So, so it's, not a, it's not a question of money, uh, I don't think, anyway. Um, because... We don't invest. I can't give you. You could be the richest man in the world. I don't know who he is. You might be Elon Musk and say, right, Philip, I'll write you a blank check if you can give me a UFO to study. I can't give you a UFO to study or even a piece of one because we don't have them. You know, so I can't take your blank check. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, so it's, it's, it's not as easy and as black and white as, as we would suspect. Uh, it, it's a lot com more complicated than that. Uh, in my opinion, I may be wrong, um, but it's not that easy, you know. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to hear your perspective on it because, I mean, like I say, obviously I've come into this really over the last two years, you know, maybe a, a year or two before that as well, um, but really sort of heavily into it over the last couple of years and seeing the kind of the, the current like disclosure kind of movement, it, you know, it's easy to get caught up in that. But like you say, somebody like yourself, you've seen those kind of movements come and go that many times over the years. So do you think that there is some kind of secretive program, whether it's the UK government I'm, I'm or the US I'm government? I'm pretty sure there is. I mean, you know, um, we have to remember that it is the duty of governments to keep secrets. Part of, it's part of what they do. And most of the time it's, it's justified. Uh, but it's not necessarily the information that's secret. It's how they've gathered it that is the secret part of it. I, I'll give you an example. Back in the 1980s, I was part of the Yorkshire UFO Society, and we had a colleague there, God rest him, he's no longer with us. He, he lived in Keithley, just outside of Bradford, and he worked in a textile mill. He was a manager in a mill. And he says, I've signed the Official Secrets Act. I said, bugger off. Stop messing about. You know what I mean? <laughs> he says, no. I've signed the Official Secrets Act. So what the hell for? You make cloth. <laughs> he says, yeah, but some of the cloth that we make is used for military dress uniforms. So I have to sign the Official Secrets Act. I said, well, is that cloth any different from the other stuff you make? He says, no, we use the same stuff for other things as well. He's exactly the same. But... But I, I have to sign the Official Secrets Act because we supply the military. So just because it's secret doesn't mean, ooh, you know, it's, it's got these special cloth and it's magic and it's got, no, it's just cloth that they sell to the military. Another, another colleague of mine, he, he worked for the MOD again, not in London, he worked in the Midlands and he, he worked on payroll. You know, their company paid the MOD employees and he too had to sign the Official Secrets Act. We have to remember in, in, in the UK, our official secrets act came out, I believe, um, with the First World War, which shows you how out of date it is. There were probably a reason for, for the things they did then, but it, it's all encompassing and it's, it's very much out of date. So do the governments keep secrets? Of course they do, you know, and, and, and we should expect them to keep secrets. Is it anything more than we've got? Maybe little bits. But I would guess probably a whole not whole lot, not a whole lot more. 
Do they know what UFOs are? No. Because the the phenomena is just as elusive to them as it is to us. No matter I mean you've got you've got the, the tic tac things, right? And I'm I'm not trying to debunk them or discredit them, but the aircraft that filmed them cost somewhere, I believe, around hundred and fifty million dollars. And all they can film is a fuzzy blob. Now to me that doesn't add up. I, you know, so they're saying, oh, the, the UFO's got an order around it or it's an invisibility cloak or whatever. Well, that's just wild speculation. The fact is you have this $100 million Top Gun fighter aircraft of the U.S. Navy and all the hell it can film is a fuzzy blob. What would happen if it, if that was in, conf, you know, if that was in, in a conflict? I'm sure they would... I mean, we see all these drone footage, don't we, of, of attacks on terrorist camps. and You can see the people walking around, you know, let alone a fuzzy blob. And so they, they pick, you know, pick out the installation they want to bomb. But yet when it comes to the UFOs, you know, the best photograph of UFOs that's still argued about is Paul Trent back in the 1950s, you know, with a box brownie, with a box brownie would have cost a couple of dollars. Here we have a $150 million jet fighter filming a fuzzy blob. I, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. But that's just the way it is. You know, we all got we all got cameras in our back pockets now, haven't we? But yet, film of UFOs has got worse. How does that happen? There's more security cameras and surveillance cameras now you know, go down your local high street, you'll see the CCTV cameras all over the place. Have we got any better film? I've, I've, I've documented in my book, UFO Landings UK, all these close encounter cases. And I'm pretty sure that certainly the people I've spoken to are the genuine article. and I have no reason to doubt the others that we have one photograph of them. Again, you're Elon Musk. Give me the best photograph or piece of film you've got of a flying saucer, Philip, or a UFO on the ground, and I'll, you know, I'll make you a rich man. I'd have to turn him down. Say I'm gone. Why is that? Why do you think that is then? Well, you tell me. You know, it, it, we're talking about nuts and bolts phenomena. If it's nuts and bolts, why the hell can't we photograph it and film it properly? However, it's- if, it, if it's paranormal. I use that again in inverted commas. It's something entirely different. Or could it be that it's not phenomenon, it's phenomena. And that what we class as the UFO subject is actually made up of several different things. But down the decades, we've we've pigeonholed them all into one. So some things do appear to be nuts and bolts. Maybe that should be separated out. Other things, maybe not. You know, again, I don't know. It's not as easy and as straightforward and as black and white as some people would have us imagine or want to imagine themselves. It is much more difficult. And just because the U.S. military or the Defense Department, whoever the hell's got a, a big budget, you know, doesn't, I don't think it makes that much difference. That's still, I mean, if you think about Project Blue Book, and again, it's got its detractors, but they had... Hundreds of sightings in Project Blue Book still classed as unidentified, and they had a you know they had a working budget. They had personnel. Okay, they didn't have you know it wasn't this wasn't the X Files. We could jump on a plane at a moment's notice. Did they really come up with anything solid? No, they said it was a waste of time. And and you can argue about whether that was the the whole purpose of it, but they did. If you look at Project Blue Book, they did what a UFO group does except they were military personnel. They go and interview witnesses, have a look at the landing site, you know, try and analyze your film and photographs. Well, we can do that. I can get somebody to analyze film and photographs. I don't need a government budget behind it. So yeah, it's not that straightforward as some people would imagine. Yeah, I think it's it's a really really good point. Actually, the next question that I had written down was was going to be: Do you think there's a link between UFOs, cryptids, and the paranormal? But it seems that you're sort of suggesting that definitely the paranormal aspect would explain why it's so difficult to capture these things, 
you know, well, it's on say, camera. You know, if we if we say paranormal, I believe in what people, some people call psychic phenomena. I don't think it necessarily has anything to do with spirit. I give. I tell you why. My ex-wife. Um, we were invited. Back this is back in the nineteen nineties. Nothing to do with UFOs, but it's a little side story. I'll show you. We were invited to go meet um, the assistant editor of one of the UK's national newspapers. I went to London, went to their offices. Never met this fellow. There was no internet then. Uh, we were checked in through security, given a badge, up to his office, cup of coffee, and he was there. You know, he appeared. Nice to meet you. And we were there to discuss me writing a, a, a double-page feature for them. He said, have you had lunch? I said, no, we just arrived. Okay, come on up. We'll go to the, we're going to have lunch. So we sat there. There's me and my wife, him. There's the picture editor, the features editor, some other lad. I don't know who, who the hell he was. And my wife um, was not normally a, a quiet person. She was very engaging, very chatty. And she just sat there not saying a word. And we're talking about what photographs we can use in the feature and all this kind of thing. And she just interrupts this fella. He's the assistant editor of one of Britain's biggest dailies, daily newspapers. And she says to him, I'm sorry, but do you know somebody called Josh? And he stuttered and stammered and changed the subject. So we finished lunch. We went back down to his office. And he says, who, who have you been talking to about me? Well, nobody. We were only right two minutes before you walked in the door. And he started to cry. And he said to my missus, where the hell do you get the name Josh from? She said, I could just see it on, across your forehead, J-O-S-H. And I had to tell you. And he said it was a girlfriend's nickname when I, when I was a younger man. But that wasn't even a name. It wasn't even remotely like a name. It was a nickname I had for her. And um, I got the job. I wrote the feature, I got paid for it, and I've, I've kept in touch with him ever since. Now, I have no explanation for that. I, I'm not saying it's got anything to do with spirits of the dead or anything. I'm just telling you what happened, and you can try and figure it out for yourself. I think that's like some of these UFO encounters. You know, it happens. People report this. They are not lying. They're not on drugs or anything like that. We don't know what the hell it is. Like like the first one I looked into at Normanton back in nine, 1980, Mrs. Westerman. God bless her. I'll never forget her. And where, where, where the incident happened, you know, it was a beautiful sunny day. She had several children with her. Um, there's the M62 motorway goes right past Normanton. You know, thousands of cars going past the town every two minutes. Nobody saw a thing but her and her children. And they were close. They were up close and personal. And that puzzled that lady as much as the actual encounter itself did. She sat down at night thinking, it'll be on the TV, be on the news. No. What, the local newspaper? Well, somebody will have seen it. No. She asked the neighbours. No. She says, neighbours, give me a funny look, Philip. Well, I went and asked them. You know, it's not the kind of thing you knock on your neighbour's door for and ask them like, you know. But she was astounded by what they observed that day, but equally astounded by the fact that it seemed that nobody else had seen anything. And she couldn't, and that, and that's not uncommon. She didn't know that, of course, but it's that's not that uncommon. And she was, you know, completely bamboozled by it. Like I am with my ex-wife, who's still on good terms. I said, well, what the hell are you doing? She said, I just saw this name across his forehead and I have to tell him. I had to ask, you know, I'm thinking he's going to chuck us out of the office and you know, but it, no, you know, we got the deal and we've, we've kept in touch ever since. Um, make of it what you will. I think, so when I say phenomena, could could UFOs and the paranormal be different sides of the same coin? I don't know, maybe. Because there are similarities, you know. It's like ghosts. Show me a good photograph of a ghost. There aren't any. Mm. You know, or if they are, they're very poor. You know, and it's the same with UFOs. Like you've had, uh, what was it, Most Haunted. How many years did Most Haunted go for? Why do they always run around in the dark? You know, <laughs> come on. Ghosts are not just seen in the dark, are they? Um, yeah. You know, when you do a sky watch 
for UFOs. Why do you always go in the dark? It's a good point. <laughs> you know, that, that to me doesn't make any sense, but I've done it myself. I've been on sky watches. But so I think there may well be a connection. And, and the phenomena, plural, you know, and I think it, the reason we get discrepancies and differences is because we as human beings perceive things differently. You know, we take information in, in, in differently. And there is a cultural influence on it as well. So when things are reported in different parts of the world, there's a cultural influence on it. Like in America, it's the little grey guys, predominantly. You know, not entirely, but predominantly. Here in the UK, we've got a mixture of everything. In Russia, it's the great big tall, you know, Russian aliens. They're different to everybody else. And, and not only that, when we come to this argument about whether it's aliens or not, if, if I gave you the power of interstellar flight tomorrow, so you can go anywhere at the speed of light, where the hell would you go? How would you find us? How would you detect another civilization? Bearing in mind, we are, you know, still the, the, the transmissions that we've sent out have been radio waves. We've been radioactive in that respect for about, what, 120, 150 years? That'll slowly disappear because we're going, we're going, the analog stuff's going. Mm. So that we won't be sending anything out into space unless we do it on purpose, but it is so big. So how would they find us in the first place? Okay, let's say they, you know, they spin the intergalactic roulette and, and they come up and they, they somehow find us and get here. Um, but some will argue that there are multiple alien races here on Earth. Well, how the hell did all the others find us? And how the hell did they get there? Have we all evolved to have this technology at the same time? That's part. Today is actually the, the anniversary, I believe, of the Drake equation. So astronomer Drake brought out the equation of the possibilities of, of intelligent life elsewhere in, in, in the universe. I think he's 90 or 90 plus now. Um, and it, it just depends how you tweak that, that calculation. There could be a lot. But one of the parts of the equation is the time frame. But it would be this, you know, intelligent life developing here and elsewhere at the same time. So that, that, you know, I mean, the universe is billions of years old. Whichever way you want to look at it, if you if you believe in creation or on or, or, or evolution, it's still billions of years old. Whichever way you want to look at it. So you would have to have all these different alien races all evolving at the same time and then all having this thing that we possess as humans, this curiosity. We have always wanted to know what's over the next horizon or what's over that ocean, you know, what's down that cave. It doesn't mean another intelligence X amount of light years away would have that. I might be quite happy, you know, sap fishing. I don't know. <laughs> you know, And not only that, they look pretty much like you and I, don't they? What are the odds? Again, look at diversity of life on this planet. You go and watch some of Richard Attenborough's TV shows. They are the most weird and wonderful things you've ever seen. But yet, if, we, if, if we're led to believe, like Roswell, the crash, you know, the humanoids, they look pretty much like you and me. Again, what are the odds on that, that evolution would develop? in the same or very similar manner elsewhere. And I think it's also, that's why some of some UFO research, and it's only a small few, like I said, have changed to looking for aliens and are saying, good point. Maybe it's not, it's us. We're, we're actually, this is us from the future. Nice story. But again, when I met, when I met Pro Professor Kaku, I, I talked to him about time travel and he, he said, yeah, it is, theoretically possible we just haven't got the power source to do it but it would not surprise him any day now that one of his great 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 grandchildren didn't appear and said -da, you know uh, but that hasn't happened so it, it is it's extremely difficult but these encounters that i've written in the book i'm i on what i don't know what on what level they take place or on what plane or what in what existence but they do you know and Say, it can be as sceptical as you want, but that will not stop them being reported, you know. And I'm not saying they're aliens. I'm not saying they're anything. All I'm saying they are fascinating accounts from ordinary people. Make of them what you will.
Well, I think that's a, a, a perfect little note to uh, to end on there. So uh, would you like to just tell the listeners a bit more about exactly where they can find the book and uh, perhaps your uh, your social media, if you can remember the, the links, etc. Yeah, yeah. I mean, UFO Landings UK, it's on Amazon. If you just put my name into Amazon, you'll find it and you'll find all the others that, that I've been associated with. I, I publish it under Flying Dispress. So I have my own little publishing house, and other books by other authors on, under the Flying Dispress banner. Again, just write Flying Dispress, disc with a K, you'll find me. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. So I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm easy to be located. Um, I'm not hiding away in the wilds of Pontefract <laughs> in West Yorkshire. I'm not, I'm not hidden down one of the old coal mines that we used to have. So... And I, I can assure anybody that buys it, but they'll find cases in there that they've probably never heard of before. Mm. And I'm, I'm sure they'll puzzle them as much as they do me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think all the um, all the American listeners and, and listeners from around the world, you might be able to find some real interesting cases you've never heard of in the, in this book. And obviously, if you are from the UK, there'll be plenty of cases in there that might be just around the corner from where you live as well. So I think everyone can take a little something from it. I think absolutely. it's a, a great book. So thanks very much for joining me, Philip. Been a pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Like I said, pleasure's all mine. Thank you. UFO Thinker Podcast.